coming. Thank you, Alfred, for the invitation. It's, it's uh, my first time in Oxford, and I'm delighted for the opportunity. Um, the talk is pretty much around this book, and I will try to present it a, a more or less um, as it is, and hopefully uh, open up a discussion at the end. Yeah. Born in 1897 in, in Berlin, Gershom Scholem is often considered to be an intellectual giant, an awe-inspiring Zionist. He was a, an awe-inspiring individual. I'm sorry. He was a Zionist, a Kabbalah scholar, a founder of a discipline, the central figure of the so-called Jerusalem School, and probably most the most famous Israeli intellectual ever. During research for this project, I met people, a few people, that are still afraid of him today, 30 years after he died. For me, he's all that, but he's also this. This is a drawing um, made of Geshem Scholem by the phenomenal David Levine for the New York Review of Books. I stumbled across it. I was looking for something else, but it captivated me. So I printed it out and taped it on the wall behind my desk. Somewhat like it is right now, and I told it. Uh, I, I I made it. I made sure that it could view my computer screen, and I told it to keep an eye on my work. If I wrote something egregious, that was the deal. It would speak up and say something. It was right there when I wrote version after version of my uh, of what ended up being this book, and it never said a word. So I reached the conclusion that it might have been okay, and I um, started to look for a publisher. Looking back uh, at, this, at, this, at this drawing, at this illustration, I think that having, uh, I think that having it served a certain important function. Uh, it reminded me that Gershom Scholem was a, was a human being. It meant, firstly, that even he was not free of error and doubt, that even he could be a subject of ridicule. But at the same time, it also helped me think of the responsibility that is involved in representing another person and telling someone's story. It forced me to ask myself what is involved in representing a human being. What is it? Why is it a, a meaningful undertaking? And finally, how do I do justice to something as complex and rich as an individual's life? I discuss the answers in the book and I, in some details. Here, therefore, I'll only say this. Sholem's stories invite us to reconsider several central questions and paradigmatic events of the 20th century. Moreover, the historical circumstances uh, that Sholem faced, his ideological disputes, his existential decisions, as we shall see, indeed, are indeed characteristic to what it may mean to live a modern life. They revolve around the tensions of exile and homecoming, of religion and science, great expectations and harsh realities. And they do so in the context of some of the most dramatic and terrible events of the 20th century. It is not, of course, that Scholem has uh, offered any concrete and final answer to any of these problems, but something about the way he represented these problems and something about how these problems are represented through him Call, call for our attention, I believe. Or in short, it seemed to me that I chose to tell Sholem's story, well, because it's a good story to tell. I should start, however, at the beginning. 
Originally, Gerhard Scholem was born, as I said, in 1897 in a Berlin middle-class Jewish family, the youngest of four brothers. He soon became enthralled by the questions of, and dilemmas of Jewish life in the modern world. He was a devout Zionist and a political activist already at the age of 16. In 1923, Sholem immigrated to Palestine, uh, then a mandate under the British Empire. There, he became a key member of the fringe Zionist organization called, uh, that advocated the creation of a binational Jewish-Arab solution to the emerging problem, political problem in Palestine. In 1925, he became a lecturer in the newly founded Hebrew University and eventually a key member of the Israeli Academy and, uh, and its intellectual circles. It is important also, of course, to mention that Sholem himself recounted the story, the story of his life in his memoir titled From Berlin to Jerusalem, which I am very glad to say leave many of the most interesting parts of his life undisclosed and untold. Nevertheless, Sholem's famous memory and memoir uh, tells, tells something of an Odyssean trajectory for Berlin, which is, at least in the 20th century, um, a memory, a place that symbolizes Jewish confusion and, and, of course, terrible danger to Jerusalem, which is understood here as a place of uh, rejuvenation, spiritual rejuvenation and hope. And I, and I chose to show the, the, the French translation of his memoir because it, it shows in a quite naive way the, these ideas of Berlin to Jerusalem. Berlin being, of course, dark and kind of scary and wet, and Jerusalem being this wonderful, beautiful oriental land. Of course, Sholem was also a scholar, arguably a scholar first and foremost. For much of his long and industrious life, Sholem wrote about, discussed, and lectured on Jewish mysticism. The outcome of more than 60 years of scholarly production is a vast, complex, and multifaceted edifice. Nevertheless, for reasons I will discuss shortly, it seems to me that the most important aspect of Sholem's accomplishment was his historiography, which is most monumentally recorded here in this 1941 uh, published, uh, the book published 1941, it's a magnum opus called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, originally a series of lectures given in New York. This then is the simple, perhaps somewhat naive answer to the question, who was Gershom Scholem? Gershom Scholem was a German Jew, a Zionist, a scholar of Jewish mysticism, who became a leading intellectual of the young state of Israel. But of course, this description also assumes a deeper answer. In essence, it assumes that for most of us, that is, for most scholars and intellectual students and thinkers, Sholem was primarily an author, a writer of texts, and a creative mind. And in this capacity, I argue, we gave us two compelling stories. One story is about an existential yet historical voyage from Berlin to Jerusalem, and the second is about the history of Jewish mysticism, uh, the story of Jewish awakening through messianism, crisis, and despair. In its very basic form, the book it consists of a reading of these two stories as they intertwine and interact. And my fundamental argument is that Sholem's two stories are, as I just said, intertwined. And more concretely, one may observe two metaphors or problems around which these two stories revolve. These are the problems here of exile and the problem of despair. Now, of course, both the problem of exile and 
the problem of despair are quintessential modern problems. Exile relates a feeling of alienation from, from nature, from one's society, and from oneself that is endemic to Western literature, philosophy, and thought. In Sholem's case, the problem can be located in a central position in both his stories. We can likewise imagine an entire library of Western canonical writings devoted to the question of disappointment or of failure. This too is central to Sholem's life and work, but I should start where life begins, in exile. As a young man growing up in Berlin and dreaming of Zion, Sholem felt that he was exiled. But the problem of exile was not merely a personal problem, it was as I will show, central to his historiography. The first chapter of the book, the first chapter of the book is developed to the young Yashov Sholem and his struggle over and against the problem of alienation, of being in exile, and the hope of finding a home. For any psychological-minded person, what I'm about to say may sound more or less obvious. The young Yashov Sholem, who devoted many hours to reading and who developed many strange and radical theories, did not feel at home in his skin. He felt alienated among his friends, his peers, and family. He held deeply unconventional beliefs about nationalism. He was expelled from school because of his radical politics. He was a nuisance to his friends at the youth movement, especially when he wrote um, and published damning critique about them and their uh, behavior. And he broke off from those he considered to be his mentors and saviors, including the undisputed leader of the Zionist youth movement, Martin Buber, his communist brother, Werner, and his older intellectual friend, Walter Benjamin. Nevertheless, the young Sholem was hopeful because over and against his own personal experience of being in exile, he was able also to develop an idea of Zion. Zion, in this context, is not so much a place as a canvas on which he could paint his fantasies. Sholem's fantasies was that everything that was wrong here in exile will be made right there in Zion. Zion, therefore, was a place of a free and equal, open, yet spiritual place for a Jew, as he was, where, where, where he, even he, could live an authentic life. Zion, in other words, serves as a metaphor for the coming of a Jewish Gemeinschaft, the community, in the sense imagined by thinkers like Georg Simmel, Martin Buber, and Gustav Landau. In short, Sholem's youth may be understood as a continuous attempt to struggle with the problem of exile and with the imagination of hum homecoming of Zion and thus with Zionism. Now, the curious thing is that the problem of exile serves as an essential role also in Sholem's monumental historiography of the Jewish people and of Jewish mysticism. Sholem posits Rabbi Zakluria's myth of exile as a central motivation for the creation of Jewish modernity. And in order to see that, it is necessary to recount briefly Sholem's version of the Lurianic mystic myth, which starts at the very beginning. In the beginning, it is told, there was only God, and there was no room for anything else, no place for creation to come into being. Creation, and this is a remarkable twist, started with what is called Tzimtzum, which Sholem calls one of the most amazing and far-reaching conceptions ever uh, put forward in the history of Kabbalism. And this is 
uh, 16th century drawing of the Tsimtsum, which I'll describe in a second, and it's taken from a forthcoming um, uh, article by Yossi Chayes, who, is, uh, who has a big project on illustrations in the Kabbalah. And I, I asked, asked him, and he kindly um, uh, sent me this, this image uh, of the Tsimtsum, which I will try to explain. Tsimtsum literally means uh, concentration or contraction, but in this context, it is better understood as withdrawal or retreat, and it represents the first dramatic moment of creation. At the first moment, at the moment of Tsimtsum, God, who is infinite and encompasses everything, retreats from himself into himself. This does that he creates in himself a space where creation can take place. And so, unlike what we may imagine, the history of the universe did not start with emanation, as it is usually understood, but on the contrary with uh, an act of receding spirituality, of passing into exile. The next days, uh, and this is what you see here, the, if you can read Hebrew, it says, Kadua that is the area that is left open by the tzimtzum, by the re, um, retraction of God into himself. That's the kadu in, in the center. And in that space, in the tahiu, um, God creates special vessels. This is the second phase of the, of the myth of exile. God creates these special vessels called kelim in Hebrew. These, these vessels are made to capture and contain the divine light. Uh, that is poured from the outside, from, from divinity itself, into the tehiru. The idea is, according to Sholem, that the primordial light was so powerful and so confused that it uh, would not, if it not had been contained in some vessels, there would, would be no possibility to create. And creation requires separation, and therefore the kelim, yet as the light poured into them, into the kelims, the vessel break. This is called shvirata kelim, it's a momentous event. Most of the divine light retracts immediately back to its source, but a few particles are caught, or were caught in the fragments of the vessels, and they uh, fall together with these fragments into the lower part of creation, into materiality. Now, okay, the falling of the sparks into the realm of materiality introduces a new protagonist and a new idea and this is where it becomes interesting, I think, for me, for us, maybe. It is stipulated that if God has brought about a crisis in creation through tzimtzum and the breaking of the vessels, then humans can, through action, here on earth, in materiality, in material, help release the sparks back to heaven. So every good idea, every, every deed, every mitzvah could release, could potentially release a spark from stuck in materiality into, into its divine source. And, and, this, and this, I believe, is a remarkable suggestion, and I remember clearly being amazed by this idea when I first heard about the Lurianic myth, uh, taking classes by, uh, from Professor Yosef Dan at the Hebrew University back in 99 or so. Um, uh, the, the reason I was amazed, because it essentially worked against everything I knew about Jewish monotheism. The Lurianic myth implied that it was God and not man that was exiled and fallen. And it furthermore implied that it was man and not God, and not God that could restore the wholeness of the universe. The Lurianic myth of exile thus suggested that now every person, indeed every Jew, could restore the universe's original form. It gave every Jew, indeed every man and every woman and every child, their responsibility toward the completeness of the universe. 
And it did not do only that. It's not only that everyone could participate in the project of restoring the universe, but every spark could be the last spark. So who knows, perhaps the next good deed, the next mitzvah could be the last mitzvah. And the restoration of the wholeness of the universe is at the hands of every one of us and may happen at every moment. Now, this is an immensely radical ideology and Sholem is keen to make this point very clearly in his work. And so it comes to be that the Luwianic ideology of restoration, as Sholem describes it, is astonishingly similar to the ideology propagated when he was a young man arguing with and against the members of the Zionist youth movement in Berlin. In both cases, as a young and radical activist and a, as a historiographer of the Lubyanic myths, Sholem imagined an idea of a free, a Jewish, cohesive and spiritual society of people, a Gemeinschaft, who work together in order to overcome history, uh, create a new heaven on earth. Now, this may suggest that Sholem discovered the principle of Zionism in the Kabbalah and that the religious Jewish imagination contained, the 16th, the 16th century Jewish imagination somehow contains what will come uh, many years after, namely Zionism. It has somehow the kernel of the Zionist ideology, but, this, but in this case, it is quite the opposite. Sholem was enthralled by the politics of exile and the imagination of Zion long before he ever seriously considered studying the Kabbalah, and certainly long before he imagined he could make a living as a scholar of Jewish mysticism. And so it is not that Sholem found the Kabbalah in the Kabbalah some precursor of modern Jewish thought and my modern Zionist thought, but rather the opposite. He modeled the text of the Jewish past according to his ideas of homecoming, redemption, and exile, which he developed as a young man in Berlin as an advocate of radical Zionism with and against the Zionist youth movement on the eve of World War I. So I discussed the problem of exile in Sholem historiographical and personal writings in the first half of the book. But the plot thickens because what happens after exile ends and exile eventually ends? Well, what comes after exile ends is a bitter, terrible disappointment. Immigration is, a, of course, a momentous. Yes, this is in Jerusalem. Immigration is a momentous and life-changing undertaking under any circumstance, and it is also true for Gerhard Gershom Scholem. For indeed, after many years of talking about Zionism, arguing and debating its meaning, it was time to act. So in October 1923, Scholem packed up his more than 3,000 books uh, and uh, probably a few other things and made the ultimate Zionist act. He did what is called Aliyah. That is, he immigrated to Palestine, but there, in Palestine, he met a reality that was everything but what he hoped uh, it would be. The sad truth of the matter was that the things on the ground in Palestine were not quite Zion. Zion, which Sholem imagined while living in Berlin, was perfect. It was the ultimate not Berlin. It was the ultimate not exile. But Palestine is different. It is a place where Zionist activists, mostly from East European descent, what is called Ostjuden, buy up land and work to cultivate it. Many times they do so while explicitly provoking their neighboring Arab and the British government. Sholem saw this immediately upon arrival. He also witnessed the growth of a Jewish national chauvinist sentiment 
and to Sholem's amazement, even at Jewish militaristic tendencies. He was stupefied by this and by, he, by what he did not find. For in truth, a cohesive, free, and spiritual Jewish communi community, uh, a Gemeinschaft, the kind of which he dreamt of, was nowhere to be found. The word disappointment cannot quite convey what Sholem felt. Zionism, which proved so effective in Europe, was dealt a decisive blow here, in the land of the prophets, in Palestine. It was a catastrophe in the, in the making, these are Sholem's words. And he did not mince his words when he described what he saw and how he felt about it. So shortly after arriving in Palestine, Sholem plunged into action. He joined a small group of activists that banded under the name Brit Shalom, which translates Covenant of Peace. And as a Brit Shalom member, he operated in a completely different manner than what he did previously. When he was still in Berlin, he did not argue in the lofty terms of, of German Zionist youth movement and did not proclaim the coming of a Gemeinschaft, of a Jewish commonwealth of Nietzsche and Ubermenschen. Rather, he made his case in realpolitik terms, and he argued the Zionism that puts its emphasis on land and blood cannot but be, direct, but be a direct provocation of Arab sentiments. Scholem predicted the rise of an Arab nationalism, which will end with a bloody mess. He was not alone with this prediction, by the way. There were a small group of people who believed this way. But, uh, but also in this capacity, capacity, Sholem experienced mostly failure. His voice and the voices of the other members of Brit Shalom were all but completely drowned by mainstream Zionist thinking, which had very little tolerance to other views. It was this time, at this time, that Sholem was busily, as, as he was busily advocating a binational Jewish Arab Palestine that he started to work on what would be his most uh, um, uh, important accomplishment, namely yes, writing the history of Sabbatian movement. Ostensibly, it is the history of Shabbatai Tzvi, who prophesies the coming of the end of times under, the under his own leadership as a messiah, until one day that he was summoned by the Sultan to come to Istanbul, and he decided to avoid certain death by converting to Islam. Ostensibly, therefore, this, this was a story of the false messiah who promised things and steered emotions across the Jewish world from Tana'a all the way to, we have records from all over the Jewish world from Yemen to Amsterdam, but he never fulfilled anything. This was how Sabbatianism was often described before, and also after Sholem. When I was a school child growing up in Israel, that's what I knew, that's what I learned in history class about, about Sabbatai Tzvi, he was a false messiah. But Sholem's subversion is, is different. According to Sholem, the story of Sabbatianism does not end, but rather start when the messiah converts. In other words, Sholem argues that the story of Sabbatianism begins with the messiah's actions uh, when the Messiah's action deal a terrible blow to all those who believed he will bring an end to their suffering and an end to history. Of course, Sholem concedes the vast majority of people accepted the disappointment of Tzvi's conversion and adapted to the new historical situation. But a small contingency of believers kept the faith in uh, the messianic role of the converted messiah even against every shred of historical reasoning. And they did so, and this is the important thing, not in spite 
of the conversion, but because of it. In other words, for some, the conversion of the Messiah must be interpreted as yet another proof of his divine stature. I will not go into the theological complexities of Sabbatianism to which Sholem dedicated most of his career. I will just like to emphasize Sholem's uh, central finding. The Sabbatian belief, he says, uh, stayed alive in the heart of Jews and Jewish believers for more than 150 years after the conversion. And he furthermore argued, so Sholem furthermore argued that the Sabbatian belief had wreaked havoc on the integrity of Jewish spiritual life as it paved its way through history and caused the splintering of the Jewish theology and the loss of the Jewish authentic self. The belief, of a, the belief in, a, in a converted Messiah as part of Judaism created a terrible, terrible damage to, uh, to Judaism. Sholem claims that uh, Hasidism, uh, Reform, Orthodoxy, and, all, and, and Jewish secularism are the products. So all the 19th century phenomena that are related to Judaism, Judaism is somehow a product of this belief in a converted Messiah. So it, he argues that this is a monumental event in the history of Judaism. Now, the point I would like to make is similar to the one I did before. Here we go. Sholem read his own disappointment into the history of Sabbatianism. More importantly, he found in both cases a similar lesson, namely, both stories tell a tale of hoping and wanting too much. Hoping and wanting what cannot be achieved. Great expectations, Sholem has implicitly argued, crash and burn when they make their way into historical reality. Anyone who keeps believing in Messianism could indeed make good, that, that Messianism could indeed make good on its promises if, even after reality had proved otherwise is clearly deluded. This is true for those who kept the faith in the, in the Messiah, Sabbatai Tzvi, alive after he converted. And it was even truer for those who arrived to Palestine and felt that the political reality on the ground, the presence of a sizable disenfranchised Arab population was but a test to their messianic aspirations as Zionists. It was essential, he argued, both as a member of Brit Shalom and as a scholar of Jewish mysticism and of Jewish, that, I'm sorry, both as a member of Brit Shalom and as a scholar of Jewish mysticism that messianism will give way to historical reasoning and to political handling. Now, this brings me to the last point I make in the book. Cholim, we have seen, started out as a radical believer in the proposition of Zion. He grappled with the problem of exile with all his might, with all the might of his young soul. Then he arrived to Zion to be dealt a harsh blow by reality. But he did not retire his radical position. As noted, he joined Brit Shalom and exp expressed extremely marginal and strongly disliked position, convictions. He argued against buying land and against the material, material, militarization of the Yeshuv, the Zionist pre-state pre entity. He also argued that the, that the Zionist historic, uh, I'm sorry, that Zionist rhetoric and the actions of the movement in Palestine strengthens the Arab national uh, sentiments and provokes a bloody and cruel conflict. Sholem, therefore, 
desperately warned that the nascent Jewish Commonwealth in Palestine is about to be burned in a combustion of Arab revolt. But this is not the Sholem that many people remember today. Sholem has talked also in the, in the warmest terms about this, the state of Israel. He also defended its right to exist. And it's important as if he was using the talking points that he received from the Israeli Foreign Office. The last substantial question uh, of the book is therefore this. How does the radical Sholem transfer into a mainstream Zionist? And why did this happen? The answer, I'm afraid, has very little uh, direct evidence in Sholem's writing. He didn't quite address it. But I feel and I think that we can still give a certain answer to it. And it is, in one word, the Holocaust, the Shoah. The point, I believe, is this. One can advocate the creation of a Jewish spiritual commonwealth in Palestine only as long as most Jews are safe in their place of dwelling. One can imagine, in other words, a Zion as a historical place for a Gemeinschaft when most Jews are safely taking care of their worldly business elsewhere. But after Hitler's rise to power, this position was made unattainable. Scholem's, Scholem, being a German Jew and the brother of a well-known communist, a, a personal enemy of Goebbels, was very well aware that the status of Jews in Germany had deteriorated suddenly and radically. He then quickly realized that the newly created Jewish refugee problem became an urgent problem, more urgent than any other idea he might have. It's very ominous with the with wind and the rain. In other words, after the rise of Hitler to power in Germany, after his brother was arrested, his brother was arrested immediately after the burning of the Reichstag in 1933, and he was in jail until he was murdered in Buchenwald in 1941, that is his brother. And after his older brothers, so two older brothers and his mother fled to Australia, after the annexation of Austria and after the world plunged into war, Scholle must have came to the conclusion that the hopes for Jewish spiritual rejuvenation, to which he dedicated almost all his life to that point, could no longer serve as an immediate concern. My favorite Sholem uh, quote from all, from all is a little quote that, uh, that I found in a letter he wrote to Hannah Arendt, his friend Hannah Arendt in 1946. She was in New York, as I'm sure you know. And it was a letter that he wrote following her publication of the immensely controversial essay called Zionism Reconsidered. This is 20 years before the Eichmann book. In, in, this, in this letter, in the letter he wrote to her after reading her article, he conceded, he conceded his position after the Holocaust probably more eloquently than he did everything, everywhere else. He wrote, I quote, I consider Ben Gurion, I consider Ben Gurion's political line to be disastrous. He says it's an Ungluck, but it is still nobler and even less terrible than yours, he tells Hanaret. In other words, Ben Gurion is not what he wanted. His politics is disastrous, Sholem argues, essentially agreeing with Arendt, but he added, it is still better than what you, Arendt, has to offer. And I would add, Sholem thought that Ben-Gurion line was even better than what he, Sholem, could ever suggest. So then, sure, this is not what Sholem wanted. He did not want a Jewish state. He did not want a Jewish prime minister, a Jewish army, and certainly not a conflict with the Arabs. But 
He acknowledged that these things are effects of historical reality, which in light of the given circumstances were preferable in his mind to the alternative, to the alternative Jews faced at the time. So this, confusion, this conclusion may, of course, be debated. It is not right or wrong in any sense. It was important to me, however, to convey that the solution is imaginable or to say that it is not unreasonable. In other words, it is indeed conceivable that in light of the terrible military clash in Europe, the, in light of the Holocaust and the intensification of the conflict with the Arabs in Palestine, someone like Sholem may choose to retire his radical political convictions and to give in. After the Holocaust, Sholem seemed to have accepted Jews like Ben-Gurion, like Moshe Dayan, as role models. At the present circumstances, Sholem seemed to have relieved their leadership as better than his ideas. This then is the gist of the book, Gershom Sholem Intellectual Biography, and, I tried to, uh, and I, as I tried to describe it, maps two fault lines that run through his autobiograph autobiographical uh, writings and his historiographical writings. The first fault line is quite clear, and it relates to Sholem's immigration to Palestine, his realization of his dream of Zionism, of doing Aliyah before immigrating, he belonged to Zionist group, to, to Zionist youth. He propagated radical views about exile, homecoming, and imagined that everything that was wrong here in exile, where he lived, will be made right there. This, I argued, did not transpire quite as he hoped. And Sholem became an active member of the Brit Shalom organization. In this new capacity, he argued about national, political, and spiritual aspirations in a completely different tone style and content. He was concerned by Arab national sentiments and by Jewish provocations. And he was also concerned by the failed messianic endeavors. It was then that he started to write the history of the Sabbatan movement. The second fault line is less vivid, but it's still clear enough. It takes place in the 1930s and 40s. Sholem then resigns his political position, his, his radical stance. Uh, um, uh, he's always critical of Jewish politics in the land, but he takes step by step a more mainstream position. After 1945, Sholem becomes something of an ambassador of Israel to the, I mean, after 1948, he becomes something of an ambassador uh, to Western Europe and to the United States. He speaks carefully but assuredly for the state of Israel and its right to exist. In more intimate circumstances, he will be critical of the handling with the Arab population, but he will always add a but at the end. Zionism has a responsibility toward peace and stability, would say, but it is not our fault that the peace had failed to come. This more resigned Sholem, this older Sholem, I also uh, should say, argue, as I argue in the book, may be observed also in his historiograph historiograph historiography, historiography, historiography. Before concluding, I would uh, want to put uh, forth, uh, forth one last question. Where do Sholem's stories bring us? Sholem remains an interesting and influential figure to this day. I would argue not because of the solutions he offered, but because of the question that motivated him even after, I'm sorry, 
I'm sorry. Um, this is not because of the solution he offered, but because the questions that motivated him are ever present in his historiography and is an, in his autobiographical writing. He chose Zionism and the Jewish mystical tradition in order to find a solution to a life stranded in exile. He failed to find what he was looking for, but he never stopped seeking. And although he knew that his path had led him to establish a rather precarious home, he never grew tired of thinking about it. Sholem's writing, I tried to argue in the book, continue to grapple with the problems that are central to, modern, to the modern experience in the 20th century history. They are informed by exile and homecoming, hopes and failures, ideology and history. And it is for this reason, for forcing us to face a world of yesterday, that these stories are still very much worth telling. Thank you very much.